Hello everyone and welcome again to Motos and Friends, an ultimate motorcycling podcast brought to you by Suzuki Motorcycles. The all new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Check it out at suzukicycles.com or of course at your local dealer. The ultimate ride awaits. This week on Motos and Friends, we take you on a couple of journeys. The first was relatively local and pretty short to Moab, Utah, where associate editor TJ Adams and I tested the Yamaha TW200 and the Kawasaki KLX230 on a long local fire road trail and later on the street. These are relatively entry level bikes, but man, we had huge fun on them. And in several ways, both of the bikes surprised us. In the second segment, I chat with a dear friend of mine, gentleman George Puckhaber. As a successful TV show producer with projects such as The World's Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers and Storage Wars on his resume, George decided that he wasn't quite living large enough. So checking an item off his bucket list, he bought a big BMW 1250GS adventure bike and headed south ultimately riding a long and winding path through some 11 countries and covering nearly 40,000 miles. He rode through Patagonia and the Andes, all the way through Chile and into Argentina to the bottom of the world, Ushuaia, pretty much the last place you can get to before reaching the Antarctic. George's ambitious journey took some telling, so we've had to separate it into two parts, the second of which you'll be able to hear about next week. It's a really cool story from a really great guy. I hope you enjoy hearing all about it. Are you ready for this? The all new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the third generation Hayabusa by Suzuki melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the new Hayabusa gives riders electronic rider aids like the quick shifter and cruise control systems that simultaneously increase performance and comfort. With even stronger acceleration, the Hayabusa's 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched sport bike performance. And, staying true to its iconic design, the new Hayabusa's straighter and sharper lines make it the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories you can choose from. These revolutionary superbikes are flying off the showroom floor, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now, or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. The ultimate ride awaits. They're both dual sport bikes. They're suitable for riding off the road on trails, and you can ride them on the road. They have lights and... Everything DOT legal. They I was going to say indicators, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turn signals <laughs> and all the sort of things you need to be legal on the road. Um, and of course, they're both off-road capable. They both come with trail-level tyres. In other words, they have knobby tyres, but they're not super aggressive knobby tyres like you'd find on a true off-road or a, an enduro or motocross bike. But they are definitely not street tyres. 
Um, I don't know what percentage they are. It would take, take somebody more of an expert than I am, but they're, mm. they're sort of 50-50 tyres. No, it's true, but they look, they look fine and natural on the, on the street. They didn't look and, and, they're, and they're quite grippy, I found. Yes, yes. So whereabouts did we get to ride these things? I mean, I know we went on a big trip and we got to ride them in several different places, um, up in Estes Park in Colorado, but the main place where we really explored them. We found a really interesting trail. I mean, the scenery was completely red, red soil. We went to Moab. Right. This was the Gemini Bridges Trail in Moab, Utah. So first of all, we found that great little campground, remember? Was it Seven Mile Campground? The Seven Mile Campground. We stopped there, very friendly people, and lots of people on ADVs and dirt bikes, little kids, everything. It was fantastic. And lots of friendly advice from people. Everyone was very happy just to chat to us as soon as we started sort of unloading our bikes and uh, telling us where we could go and have a nice ride. I think we set off a little bit too late, but <laughs> we still enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, the round trip was, it took us a couple of hours, I would say, didn't it? Yes. Um, I don't know how many miles it was, but it, essentially the terrain was mainly fire road. Uh, there was definitely some sand. There was quite a lot of rocks, but it was mainly sort of, you know, Jeep four by four. We saw several side by sides and Jeeps driving it. So it wasn't serious off-road stuff. I mean, neither you or I are serious off-road riders. No, and that was great to start with because the climb, this, the Gemini Trail goes up pretty high. And so I was pretty, I was glad it was sort of fire road and not too challenging to start with because we did quite a climb. Right. Pretty quickly. I mean, the views were spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. As I say, red rock everywhere, that sort of scenery where you've got rocks balancing on top of rocks and you could just see as far as <laughs> as far as the eye can see. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, well, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, but essentially, essentially, yes. I mean, spectacular scenery and a, a great road for sort of entry-level off-road riders such as us. I mean, we're both, you know, expert-level road riders, but off-road we have almost no experience. So <laughs> no. it was great to just ride on the fire road and just explore and have some fun in safety. I think I've just been sort of around a grassy field before on a child-sized trail bike. Right. So it, I was really looking forward to having the adventure. And we did that little bit in Estes Park and a few other places, didn't we? So Sure. We'd, we'd had a little, little bit, a few challenges, but I was looking forward to sort of having a bit of concentrated time. Right. The other thing that was quite interesting was the trail came out at the top of, towards the top of the mountain on the road. And so, and the road was pretty twisty going downhill. Yes. Really nice tarmac. So we got a chance to ride both bikes in decent off-road conditions and then on the road mm. and coming down the hill back to the park with, for several miles. So we've got to try it out in different ways. Um, the Kawasaki, I would say, is, is a lot more off-road oriented, whereas the Yamaha is more street oriented. They're both capable of doing each, each one, very capable. They both ride off-road and on-road, but the Yamaha has much shorter suspension travel. I think the, the look of it is very encouraging. It has cushy looking tires, even though they're knobbly, they don't, they don't look scary. They're quite, they're not fat, but they're fatter than what you'd normally see on a trail bike, a complete off-road bike. So um, 
I sat down going up the hill up those fire roads um, until I got nearer to the top and it felt really comfortable. I can't think of another word for it. I think the front suspension travel on the Yamaha was the 6.3 and at the back the rear was 5.9. I was interested in that because for me I, I always, I, being a little bit on the uh, shorter side, I always look at um, seat heights and suspension. Sure. Um, and then the Kawasaki, the front suspension travel was 8.7, quite a difference compared to the 6.3 on the Yamaha. Right, that's a the, lot more, that's a yes, lot more. yeah. And on the Kawasaki, the rear suspension travel, 8.8. .8. As opposed to 5.9. Yeah. Big so not quite six inches versus almost nine inches of travel. Mm. And the difference is, is that even the feel, I don't know if you felt the difference, but but on the Yamaha, the suspension is much firmer, the way you would expect on a street bike. Yes. Whereas on the Kawasaki, um, you know, the, the suspension is much softer. So as soon as you sit on the bike, it immediately crushes down on the suspension. Yes. Um, which obviously makes it less capable on the road, but a lot more comfortable off the road and more capable off-road. That's right. It really gave in to any massive lumps and bumps or if you accidentally drop down a pothole you didn't kind of get that jarring feeling. Yeah, the difference in the seat height as well is really quite, quite a lot. The Kawasaki uh, KLX um, seat height is 34.8 inches, so almost 35 inches, whereas the Yamaha only has seat height of 31.1. So for me, I, I prefer to be able to flat foot. I'm, I, I will ride motorcycles that are taller, but I've got a 29 inch inseam. And so that probably helped with my feeling of comfort on the Yamaha TW200 because um, I, I knew I could put my feet down if you I You just felt more secure me. on it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, but having said that, you rode the Kawasaki really very well, the KLX. So yeah, I loved even, it. even though you couldn't, you were sort of on tippy toe when you were stopped. Once you were rolling, that thing gave you a lot of confidence. That's right. I had to do that thing where you're on one foot to get going, which I know a lot of people do. But um, once, yeah, once it, it got rolling immediately, it was uh, great. I felt very secure. Yeah, I mean, I found them both really, you know, intuitive, super easy to ride. I mean, these are really beginner-friendly motorcycles. I would say particularly the TW200, I felt um, yes. the seat was more comfortable, so not, not that the Kawasaki was uncomfortable, <laughs> but it has a skinnier feel to the seat. Yeah, I, I, again, I don't, you don't want to say something bad about, about the other one because I don't want to give people the impression it wasn't good, but they're definitely, in terms of comfort, um, without a doubt, the Yamaha was more comfort. It is just a more of a, mm. uh, it is more of a street friendly, urban environment kind of motorcycle. It's cool to look at. It's got a really cult following. So with those big chunky fat balloon tires, which incidentally, once it goes off road, those balloon tires are literally part yeah, of the suspension. Yeah, they're man enough. Definitely, they handle well. And and it handled well. But once you're on the road. The Yamaha was dramatically better handling than, than the Kawasaki. The Kawasaki had such soft suspension and was, you know, with a 21-inch front wheel instead of an 18-inch front wheel. The Kawasaki definitely just didn't handle as well on the street. But, you know, it handled competently. It wasn't bad handling. Exactly. Didn't but the, the Yamaha 
TW200 was definitely much more street oriented. Yes, I think it's just a case of finding, there's nothing wrong with either of them, you're just finding the right type of bike for yourself and your own experience. If you've done a bit of off-roading and trailing, I think you would become a little disappointed with the TW, the Yamaha TW200 because you have that experience and you would want um, the benefits of things like the suspension travel and more clearance because you're able to do more than I think you'd aim at the Kawasaki. Um, if you're a complete beginner or you're trying to put your, I don't know, if you've got a, a youngster you're trying to put onto a, an off-road motorcycle, um, you know, you want them to be able to ride a college or whatever on the motorcycle on the road, but you also want them to be able to have some fun at the weekends, then the Yamaha TW200 is perfect for that. Yeah. Yeah, it, I would I would agree with that. They were it was really quite noticeable the difference between the two, but each one of them was very comp competent mm. even in the environment it was less capable in. So I mean I rode the Yamaha TW two hundred quite a lot on that fire road, and although it wasn't clearly wasn't as capable as the Kawasaki off road, I still had a lot of fun on it, mm. and it was great. It, it it soaked up everything I I threw at it. The other big difference in the two of them, obviously, are the two engines. The Yamaha 200, they're both single cylinder four strokes, but the Yamaha is a, um, it's not fuel injected, it's just a carburetted single cylinder, uh, just, on, just a shade under 200cc single. It's been around for a long, long, long time, that engine. It's very capable, um, but clearly it doesn't put out anywhere near the same horsepower as the Kawasaki 230, which again, it's a single cylinder four stroke, but it's fuel injected and- Slightly bigger engine. And it, and it puts out quite a lot more horsepower. The Yamaha, the engine size, the displacement is 196cc on the Yamaha and 233 on the Kawasaki. Which doesn't sound like an awful lot. Um, what's that, so, so not quite 30cc more. But you've got uh, sorry, not more, quite 40cc more. Got a bit more vim. But, but that 40cc makes quite a big difference. I guess if you think about it, that's about a quarter as much again. Mm. Um, but it does it does make a difference. The Kawasaki definitely had that extra bit of pep. Um, and again, when you're off-road and suddenly you come around the corner as you did and there were those that giant sort of rock staircase <laughs> in front of you, you were able to, to just me, yeah. <laughs> you were able to just grab a handful in whatever it was, second or third gear, and the thing just climbed straight yeah. up. I was in third gear, the, 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 um, this was on the Kawasaki KLX 230, and it was still nice and forgiving. I tend to go for lower gears because I feel more secure for some reason. Quite right. But um, the sort of, uh, the, the running the tick over is quite high, and I, but I still felt good. And I didn't want to stop where you were once I'd seen you because I noticed it was all sandy. And I thought, I'll just stop and tip over because my <laughs> one-footedness. So I just, yep, pulled the uh, throttle and thought, should I be leaning backwards or forwards? <laughs> I couldn't remember, but I made it up there. In fact, both of the motorcycles got me out of trouble a, a few times. Yeah, they're very. Yeah. I mean, they're very responsive. They both have sort of instant response. You know, you if you suddenly need need a burst of power, you can just grab a handful and and it will pull you out. And single cylinder motors, they're low revving, very torquey motors. So, um, so they're, they're, it makes them easy to ride. You don't have to be constantly stirring the gearbox all the time. You can kind of most of the time, I think I left it in about third gear and you can just 
punter along quite happily and, and they were both great. Yes, awesome. and we did go over a variety of terrains. We, we had sort of slate and pebbles uh, and sand, which I felt a bit scared of, but I just kept the throttle on and... and just motored your way out of things. Both took me through different, different sand patches that we went through. Um, yeah. And going over the rocks and drops we went down where there were lots of, so many potholes that I couldn't avoid them. I didn't feel any suspension bottoming out. I didn't have any nasty moments like that on either of the two motorcycles. As far as other things, I mean, both bikes come equipped with ABS, um, yes. which is standard, kind of, which a, is nice. sort of stand, which is kind of a necess necessity think, nowadays. I think so. It's such a safety um, feature. Serious off-road people wouldn't want that. ABS is is not good off-road, but mm. at, at our level of off-road and the speeds we were riding, it was it was fine. Uh, but it's good for on the street to have ABS. But the, I found the brakes were excellent. Again, on both of them, the Kawasaki yes. had slightly better brakes. And soft to start with. I thought being trail bikes, they would be quite snatchy. That was another thing I thought was coming because as I, say, I haven't got much experience, but they were both very easy to, to, to use. And plenty I of feel. Yeah, I felt the same. Yeah, yeah they were, they were, they were good. Yeah, they were very good. So you've got bigger wheels on the Kawasaki. Yes. Yes, the Kawasaki has more traditional off-road wheels. It has... Um, an 18-inch rear and a 21-inch front. And that big front wheel helps it off-road, certainly climbing over rocks and, and, and over rough terrain. It really can eat up that stuff. The Yamaha has much, much smaller wheels. It has an 18-inch front and a 14-inch rear. Uh, it's not that the, the rear wheel is very small. It's got a big balloon tire. So it's got those very high sidewall balloon tires. So Actually, it doesn't sound quite as mismatched as, as it does in the specs. But, but again, the, the Yamaha's tires or wheels are a little more on-road friendly, um, whereas the Kawasaki's wheels and tires are a little more off-road friendly. Mm, a bit more committed. A little bit more committed. Just makes it a little e easier if you're dual sporting it somewhere. But they both stuck pretty well. And when we got onto the, stra onto the street, I was um, quite impressed. I mean, the Yamaha has, um, from memory, I think it's about a 65 mile an hour top speed. I mean, yes. it was. It's not horribly slow. You could certainly ride it on the on the freeway. I mean, um, yes. I mean, they are small bikes. They're small so... bikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you wouldn't want to ride it on the freeway. But the point is, is you in could. any kind of urban environment, you are not going to get swallowed up by cars and and what have you. You've got all the performance you need to ride it around town or, or commute on or, or what yes, have you. Or get to a trail if you're somewhere fairly close. Or get close, to a trail. You don't want to load your bike up and you can just ride there on the road and then have your off-road fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah they were. I liked the clocks on the Yamaha. I liked the... The instruments. The needle. You know. Yeah, yeah. I liked digital as well, but... Slightly more, yeah. The Yamaha's quite happy to a lot more conventional. More. A lot more conventional type of clocks. Whereas the Kawasaki has has uh, more sort of new um, new age kind of instruments, which is all digital, digital LCD readout, yeah. rather than just the the sort of old school um, type of Yamaha mm. clocks. But both um, nice and clear. Yeah, yeah, they both both were really nice. I have to say, I was very impressed. I, I before I started before I rode them both, I rather expected the Yamaha to be a kind of fashion fun kind of kids bike 
it's relatively small it's got the big balloon tires so it's kind of like this cool charismatic urban fun bike but yes. i really didn't expect it to be very good in any way shape or form other than just sort of looking cool but so i was very pleasantly surprised how capable it is yes i was expecting a huge difference just because of the looks because the kawasaki looks so um, committed and off-roadish yeah exactly but they both i didn't have any anything to criticize on performance you know as i say i'm, I'm not an expert off-road rider um i think uh it's just a case of uh i don't know which one would i choose i think i would because even that short ride which was was not as short as we thought it was going to be <laughs> we should have asked that chap how long it was going to take us because we left about yeah. 5 p.m in the evening thinking we'll be home for dinner in half an hour it was not a half hours. an hour ride <laughs> But I would say, I would say, don't forget, um, in terms of price, they're only a hundred dollars apart. The Kawasaki is four seven nine nine. The Yamaha is, is four six nine nine. So they're actually very close in terms of price. The other thing I would say about the Kawasaki is they do make a, a shorter version. So if you don't like the idea of the thirty-five inch seat height, you can get the Kawasaki KLX. S. Uh, 230 and the 230S and the 230S has has uh, shorter suspension travel so it is lower to the ground right um, so you're gonna lose some of that nice plush suspension that we've talked about but you'll be able to touch the ground more easily yeah so if that's a concern for you they have covered that yeah I don't know I mean once but I'd read it's tough to choose between them because that Yamaha is so cool I love the coloring on it that sort of battleship gray yes. it's very modern and hip and definitely has character. I can see you know, it does. a fun bike to just, you, you know, go down to the cafe on and all that sort of thing. Just it's buzz just around, fun. yeah. But um, having tried that Kawasaki KLX 230, I think I would now have the confidence to own that. And I guess, I hope one would improve <laughs> the off-road riding. <laughs> and, you know, then you'd be benefiting because you've got higher clearance, etc. So the more adventurous you get, you're already prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're right. It's a matter of, uh, as a prospective buyer, it's a question of how much off-road riding do you really think you're going to be doing? If you're going to be doing a fair bit, I would say mm. go for the Kawasaki. If you're going to be doing a little bit and mainly street and urban stuff, I'd say go for the Yamaha. Both the great Yamaha, bikes. actually, when you think about the situation we were in when we were in a camper and in a campground, the Yamaha is ideal. You could just hop on that two up and go out for dinner and leave your camper in the campground. I mean, you could do that on the Kawasaki, but I'm just saying, you know, the Yamaha is... The Yamaha is more initially user-friendly simply because it's got a lower seat height and a much, mm. much more plush seat. So it fits two people easily and you can both just jump on and, you know, buzz around. It's a great paddock bike yeah, as much as Yeah, it has a good anything. look. And Dana, a friend of ours that was with us, she doesn't ride, but she was quite willing to sort of, she was going, yeah, I might have a go on that one because it did look... Looks, um, looks so friendly. friendly. Yeah. Are you ready for the revolutionary new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle? Hailed as the ultimate sport bike, the third generation Hayabusa melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched performance. 
Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate ride awaits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In this second segment, I chat with George Puckhaber, who bought a big BMW 1250GS adventure bike and headed south. Ultimately, covering some 11 countries and nearly 40,000 miles, he rode to the bottom of the world, pretty much the last place you can get to before reaching Antarctica. George's journey took some telling, so we've had to separate it into two parts, the second of which you'll be able to hear about next week. It's a really cool story from a really great guy, and I hope you enjoy hearing all about it. You got to ride down to the end of the world. I did, yes. <laughs> and okay. Why would somebody do that, right? Why, right. Uh, <laughs> so, well, well, all right, start at the beginning. So which bike was it you started on? I started on a BMW GS 1200 adventure bike. Okay. And uh, you a, can, a new one. A new one, brand new. Right. It, I had 3,000 miles on it when I left. Right. Um, Barely broken in. Barely broken in. First oil change, and then I hit the road. Right. On a fresh set of tires. Why that bike? You can uh, thank you and then Charlie, right? Right. They <laughs> they yeah. sold a lot of motorcycles for BMW. Um, well, I mean, the theory is that if you break down anywhere in the world, there's always they can always get spares to you. And that turned out to be absolutely true. Um, right. So I picked that bike one. It had a low seat height compared to the KTM 1290 and whatnot. Um, you know how we ride. There were a lot of people talking about you need a DR650 or a KLR or something, but that just doesn't have the performance we're used to. Right, um, right. And so you felt like it was going to be mainly on-road then, on-road and some fire Not road. necessarily. I, uh, okay. The BMW is very capable off-road, and we sure. hunted as much dirt as we could find. Oh, interesting. Okay. Same so time though, you got to cover a lot of ground and you don't want to be popping along at 60 kilometers an hour. You want to go 100 kilometers an hour. Sure. And you know, if you're in the mountains with switchbacks and there are 10 diesel trucks in front of you, you want to be able to get you, around them. You need to have the know. horsepower just to buzz You need horsepower. Past. So right. I'm a horsepower okay. guy. <laughs> Okay, so you said we. Did that mean that you went with someone? I did not. I went by myself, but because it's a pilgrimage, and really it's all based around ADV Rider, the motorcycle site, um, I knew there were people ahead of me, and I knew where people were behind me. We all sort of had an eye on each other, and we would meet along the way. And so I rode with a guy from uh, Canada for a lot of the trip, and when I wasn't riding with him, I was riding with a German couple. Ah, and, you know, okay. we kind of all switched off. Oh, that's cool. So you meet people along the way and you travel with them. Right. Until your goals part. You know, one wants to go to the beach, one wants to go to the mountains, and then you right. regroup down the way. Yeah. So it yeah. worked out really nicely. That's awesome. So obviously you started in Los Angeles. I headed did. Headed down to San Diego. I did. Okay. I rode there with Ken, our mutual friend, right. and uh, he said goodbye. I went east to Arizona and crossed into Sonora. 
Now, the reason for that was I've been to Baja a dozen times on okay. motorcycles. And a lot of people like to go down Baja and take the ferry across, but I wanted to go in through Sonora, which is the Sierra Madre Mountains, okay, and into Copper Canyon. Now, about a day's ride into Mexico, there is a hotel called Los Arcos, an American runs it. And he was my first night there, and you know, he knows all of Mexico. So it was a good way, spend your first night there, meet someone who can give you the lay of the land. Okay, were you concerned about drug cartels? And I mean, Sonora is pretty, isn't that cartel country? I've heard of all the stories, but I'm not in the drug business. I didn't plan to have any encounters with them, and I didn't see any activity that would have been suspicious right so, so you know if you're just not part of it then you can pro they'll probably leave you alone yeah they leave you alone they have no interest in screwing around with tourists a, a lone it, motorcycle guy. it brings the heat on them they're not interested in that right, right now if you go down there trying to see what they're up to all bets are off well yeah <laughs> you know yeah i can imagine yeah okay so so what is Sonora like? I mean, what's the... Sonora's landscape? amazing. It's it's mountain country, and there's a place called Creel. And then uh, from Creel, you go to Copper Canyon, which is like their Grand Canyon. And it's pretty cool. It's nice. it's a Grand Canyon, just like ours. Giant. Oh, wow. Yeah, who knew, right? <laughs> right. And the riding's fabulous, Arthur. I mean, the roads are motorcycle heaven, until they're not, <laughs> you know? So they're well-paved and- They're well-paved, uh, nice new black and... tarmac, and then you come around a corner and it's gone to <laughs> pieces. But there's a lot of reasons why, but basically just cheap construction because of kickbacks and whatnot. Right. Um, but they're always working on new roads. They just don't last very long. <laughs> um, Okay, so I can see why the adventure bike for sure. Adventure bike works, you know, yeah. um, because you're just spinning along on beautiful black tarmac and then there are potholes everywhere and then it's dirt for a section and oh, construction okay. site and then it comes back to beautiful tarmac. <laughs> okay. But Mexico, I gotta say, is a very overlooked riding paradise. Really? The riding's what? fantastic and the food I mean, the best food of the trip was in Mexico by far. Nice. nice. They have Mexican food there, believe they it or not. Mexican food yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so not actually like Baja Fresh. I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. no it's, Looking around for a Del is, Taco. <laughs> yeah, it is great. Nice. Um, okay. So Mexico was probably one of the top highlights of the trip. I spent five weeks traveling through Mexico. You know, for years I'd been following adventure riders who were doing the trip. And when I'd hear about something interesting, I'd stick a pin in my map of Mexico. So before I left, I had a whole map filled with pins and then I kind of drew a route through it on great rides. Oh, so you weren't just blazing through to, to no, get to... No, I had things I wanted to see, places I wanted to go. Right. Um, was but there anything, still, that really, anything that really stood out? As... Copper Canyon by far. Okay. The, the city of Oaxaca was amazing. Um, in what way was that amazing? Because it's a big city, but in the middle is the old town, the Spanish architecture. 
um, and it's a cool mix of Spanish architecture and a lot of indigenous people who come in from the countryside to sell their wares. And the food was mole. It was uh, it was just fantastic. So it's like a, just a giant Mexican farmer's market. It was indeed. That sounds awesome. Around old Spanish cathedrals. Wow. So pretty cool. Beautiful. Um, do you do you speak Spanish at all? I mean, none. <laughs> you know, I tried. I studied. I've tried. You know, but I I was too old when I started getting serious about learning Spanish. So you got to hola. <laughs> yeah, I can say hello and where's your bathroom. <laughs> but uh, but by the time I was done, I could uh, I wasn't fluent, but I could I could function. Okay. Yeah, I've forgotten it all since then. But right. Yeah. Yeah, I found when I'm traveling, it's a lot. It, it, being able to understand people comes a lot quicker than being able to speak back. That's right. So at least if you can sort of throw out something, yes, then the chances are you can probably start to understand what they say back, and so you can kind of get by. And traveling single versus traveling as a couple, you have to communicate. You know, sometimes <laughs> right. people, you know, two of two people traveling together get in their own little bubble. And work their way along, but when you're right. by yourself, you're out there. You gotta, right? You right. gotta negotiate a place to stay and find gas and medicine and food and whatnot. Sure. So when you say places to stay, it sounds like you weren't camping at all. I was not camping until <laughs> Argentina, and okay. I'm jumping way ahead in the chronology. But uh, we, I, at that time, I was just traveling with a couple from Germany. And we were somewhere around Lima, Peru, and they said, hey, where's your tent? I'm like, I don't have a tent. <laughs> of course, I bought a brand new tent, sleeping bag, everything at REI before I left LA. And then when I was packing, I was like, not taking the tent. I'm not a camper. I don't camp. There's plenty <laughs> of places. <laughs> so I, I get with the Germans and they're like, where's your tent? I'm like, I don't have one. Where are you going to stay? I'm, I'm going to stay in lodges and hotels. They're all the way down. And they looked at me kind of funny. And then they said, George, people travel from all over the world to go to Patagonia to go camping. We're going camping. I was like, well, I'm not. I'm staying in the hotel. <laughs> so they convinced me I needed a tent. So we went out. And I bought a new tent, sleeping bag, air mattress, like the brand new ones I had at home. Um, I spent a couple of nights in it and I lost it <laughs> on a pass. It was in a bag on my on my tank bo uh, tailback box. And uh, there was a border crossing and it was 100 miles between the Argentine checkpoint and the Chilean checkpoint. And it was just a dirt road through the mountains, no one there. And I said, guys, I'll meet you at the top. See ya. And I got on the gas and I flew. Just had the best time of my life. Got to the next border, waited an hour or so for them to show up. They're like, where's your tent now? It had fallen off somewhere crossing the Andes. So it was a great ride that cost you a tent. Yeah, I spent one night in that tent. That was, that was about 700 bucks worth of stuff gone. And uh, so I had to go to Santiago and buy my third tent, sleeping bag, and air mattress. Which oh, nice. Today I still have. Okay. How do, you, how do you deal with money at, at these places? I mean, are you just carrying like a boatload of cash? Or are you charging credit cards and trying to keep that to a minimum? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we discovered that 
ATMs are everywhere and they give you good exchange rates. So I carried very little money except for the boat ride from Panama to Colombia around the Darien Gap. I had to pay my balance in cash. Okay. So I had like 1200 bucks in US dollars hidden in my jacket, in, okay. you know, behind my back protector. Right, okay. Um, but we found that ATMs are everywhere and they give good exchange rates. And, wow, that's and awesome. There and was, you're not concerned about putting your PIN number in or any of that no, stuff? No, well, what I did to safeguard it, I, two reasons. At the time I went, I don't know if it's still true, but Charles Schwab has a checking account that reimburses all ATM fees. So they oh, don't wow. they don't charge you ATM fees plus they reimburse whatever the bank local bank charges you. So that wow. was the only bank in the US that did it. So I had a Charles Schwab account which I never put more than 1000 bucks, 1200 bucks in. So right. if it was ever compromised, there was a cap to how much money I would lose. Right. Sure. And it was never I never had any issues with it. Really? That's wow, that's awesome. And as we got farther south into South America, uh, credit cards became more common. Okay. So we would use credit cards when we could sure. to kind of hoard our cash. Sure. In case of an emergency, we would have pesos. And you never got any of these security alerts and, you know, rejected whatevers? And I contacted my bank and credit cards before I left and said, this is where I'm going to be. Right. out of you know so they all knew so don't be surprised yeah don't be surprised yeah, if you get a smart. charge that's smart because you I mean, I mean obviously you must have carried a cell phone but again i, I mean how do you deal with that you're probably buying sim cards at the border i each bought time. sim cards at the border and okay. at first it was very intimidating and then once you get the hang of it it's no big deal <laughs> just swap out the sim card and then and you we, get you kind of get pissed off. You're like, why am I paying 70 bucks a month to Verizon or whatever? Down here, I can buy a SIM card for seven bucks and it's good for a couple of months. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Now you're using data. You're not using cell phones. And um, Wi-Fi is everywhere. Every little coffee shop you go to, they got the password on the wall. I did use a VPN protector. Okay just as an added layer of security. Whether it was necessary or not, I don't know. Wow, it sounds, sounds pretty good. Did you have a lot of trouble at the borders? I mean, I've heard that, you know, border crossings is the big, is the big problem. Central American border crossings can be very confusing and intimidating. But like I do you, said, do you need visas for them? Or? You do, and on, the only visa I needed in advance was Bolivia. But Central America, you get your visas. What you have to do is you have to import yourself, and then you have to import your bike. And then when leaving the country, you have to export yourself and export your bike. So it's two steps immigration and customs. Um, Interesting. Once you figure it out, it's really not that hard, but Central America, there are fixers everywhere and they're all in your face and they're trying to help you and they're pulling you this way and that. <laughs> and what we did, I was traveling with a Canadian guy at the time and we were following the guys ahead of us who were writing very detailed reports on how they crossed the borders. 
And okay. uh, we'd either find that on Adventure Rider or an app called iOverlander, which is very, very helpful in South America. Uh, actually, we use iOverlander here in this country. It's, it's getting better in the U.S., but really useful down there. Really? Okay. Uh, but all the details are there for border crossing. You can say, oh, Arthur crossed a week ago, and this is what he went through. Now, it's wow. a zoo. You go in, you give them this, <laughs> they want a photocopy, you got to go get a photocopy. Where's that? It's in town. You go get a photocopy, you bring it back, they stamp it. Now they need a photocopy of it with the stamp. You know, it's oh. it's a whole runaround, but just make sure you get a visa for yourself and a temporary import paper for the bike. So right. import yourself and then the bike, and then make sure you export both of those things when you leave. And it's, I, I'm, I mean, as with everything, especially traveling, it all comes down to attitude. It does. So, so provided you're not in any kind of rush, right. and you're just like, you know what, I'm going to allow myself a day. It's just going to cost me a day. Bingo. And you know what, and if it takes less than a day, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of the game. That is exactly right. We. Uh, and then you just know, not stressed, and they don't get weirded out. We would get there early, you know, always early in the morning, not right before closing where everyone's freaking out and uh we adopted the mindset that this is our only job today our job is to get through this border and all of these people are getting through the border they're going to let us in but it's going to be confusing but this is all we have to do is figure this out right and um and you do yeah you just that's your only job no stress you know, if they make you go get in a line and they want a dollar and you've only got a five and then so you got to go get change and then come back and get in the line again. Uh, there are all kinds of hustles going on, but you just let it wash over you. You let it wash over you. <laughs> right. You're like, this is my only job. And then the helpers come and we're going to help you and get you through. And you're like, I don't thank you, but I don't need your help. I'm going to learn to do this on my own. And cool. Eventually, they leave you alone. You right. figure it out. And they're probably, again, if they detect that attitude off you, they're probably fairly pleasant to you. They are. I mean, I can't imagine that they're just out for all kinds of trouble. I mean, they're not. This must happen all the time. Lots of travelers. And if you've got a good attitude and you smile at them, and it's, you know, it's fine. Yeah. It's a lot like there are tons of uh, military checkpoints all through the continent. Oh, really? All through Mexico, Central America. And those guys are just doing their job. You know, you pull up, you smile, you talk to them, they ask you questions, they look at your papers, and they let you go. Right, right. Again, it's all about just not being a threat. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, if you're just this yeah. you know, benevolent, benign guy. You got to be cool. You can't be <laughs> right. short-tempered and angry, or they'll mess around with you. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, they'll entertain that. themselves. Because <laughs> <laughs> they got lots of time. Yeah. You hear about, you know, all this corruption down there. Yes. Did you come across a lot of that? I mean, people stopping you for speeding when you weren't and telling you that it's going to cost you 50 bucks? <laughs> I came across it, whether it I was guilty all of the times <laughs> I got caught. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of signs at the border about corruption. So they are really making a crackdown on people who are trying to 
look for Scam bribes, notorious. scammers. Right. So those guys are in danger of getting in trouble. And sort okay. of the common philosophy is, if you get stopped, you don't understand what they're talking about, but you're polite and you talk to them in English and you're confused and you're joking and you waste enough of their time, they let you go. Oh, and it worked for me a lot because, you know, <laughs> I'm flying along, somebody gets me on the radar and then they want money and then I want to go to the police station and pay and and I stall them long enough, they let me go. <laughs> now, where that went wrong is I had a buddy fly into Columbia to Cali and he rented a motorcycle and he rode with me for a couple of weeks and then flew home. And it was his last day. We're riding back to Cali and he's going to catch a plane out that night. We get stopped, totally guilty, passing on the double yellow in a mountain thing. <laughs> and there are the cops right there watching us watching us do it. We pull over. The guy wants money. Um, my, my friend Justin and I had not had the talk about what to do. And he speaks Spanish. And he was like, I got this. I got this. And he pulls out his wallet and a bunch of money. He was like, what's it going to take? You know, <laughs> next oh, thing no. I know, he's giving the guy 200 bucks. We're on our way. And then he thinks he's done a good deed and wants 100 bucks from me. And I was like, dude, you did that all wrong. You don't pay bribes. The rule <laughs> is don't pay bribes. Right. And um, you just wait them out and they get frustrated and they let you go. But he pulled out his wallet and flashed the money and they took it. <laughs> okay, that's uh, interesting. So Now in Columbia, along those same lines, we got stopped. The very first day he arrived, I had planned a route and uh, we got stopped at a military checkpoint. And they were like, where are you going? And we told them, they were like, this is not the way. We're like, yes, it is the way, see the maps. They're like, your bikes are not suitable for this road. We're <laughs> like, no, these are dirt bikes. The worse the road is, the more fun we're gonna have. And they would not let us go. And finally, uh -huh. um, finally they closed the checkpoint, took us 30 kilometers back, put us on a toll road and took us way down the toll road, which we didn't want to go on. We wanted to ride the back roads, right? Right. And I was a little, I was a little peeved. It was my first, my buddy's first day there. I wanted to show him around. I wanted to take him through the jungle. Right. And it wasn't until a month later, I'm looking at iOverlander and there was a big red flag there saying there was rebel activity and oh. kidnapping of tourists and car bombs. And we're like, oh, shit. They saved our bacon. They, maybe they, did <laughs> they didn't bacon. tell us why. They just said your bikes aren't suitable for the road. Wow. So, wow. That's cool. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, so you so you uh, went down through Mexico first mm. of all, and then crossed over into Guatemala. Guatemala. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Guatemala is a lovely place. I spent well. I visited a lot of it, but I spent a week in Antigua. There's a place there called uh, Moto Tours. A young guy named Jose, he's got a bike rental shop there and a oh, little cool. hostel. And so a lot of the travelers stopped there, hung out with him, had a great time. Uh, I would go back there and rent a bike and ride uh, Guatemala if the opportunity ever came back. 
Wow, that's um, awesome. Yeah. So what was what, what's the terrain like in Guatemala? And the climate, I mean, presumably hot and very humid. It's very hot and humid. It's very green, a lot of volcanoes. He took me to the site of a volcano hit that had gone off in June. I would have been there in October. Okay. So the previous June. But you're in the Southern Hemisphere now, so so you're coming into the summer we're uh yes it's very warm we're you're still right. not to the equator oh okay so yeah. you're still just north we're Hemisphere. still north of uh the equator. the equator but we're below the trop we're in the tropics okay sure uh he took me to a place that had been wiped out by a volcano a few months earlier and it was surreal really you know to see the remnants of a tent two thousand people disappeared holy crap and uh what do you mean the t volcano exploded and they just didn't get out? The pyroclastic flow came down and just split the town. There were houses on each edge and the middle was gone. It was just black. Um, wow. And the, the Red Cross was still there looking and digging and uh, the road across the, the flow was still unstable. And they had guards on both sides with antennas and big alarms and they were like okay go but if you hear the alarm go really fast because <laughs> <laughs> it means there's more there's flow. more coming holy crap and it comes yeah. down that fast oh. it was uh probably the the hardest thing i saw on the trip wow wow so i mean did you actually see any sort of anything other than just lava i mean did you it was, no we saw some ruins of houses right and the Red Cross camp, and there was a statue of a dog at the Red Cross camp. Wow. I was like, what's that all about? And apparently when the first uh, responders showed up, a dog came running to them and took them back to where his owners were. Oh. Took him back to his family, but everyone was gone. Everyone was oh. dead. So the Red Cross guys adopted the dog and he's sort of their mascot. Wow, and they made a statue of him. And they made a statue of him. Wow, how cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, wow, wow, that's it's funny. I mean, you never hear of these things in, in America, in this sort of, you know, town of 2,000 people. Gone. Wiped, wiped away. Wiped away. In a matter of seconds. I mean... On a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Oh, man. They think most of the people were at church, at the various, you know, churches, and not in their houses. So they were all just trapped inside And they were all these just knocked out. They probably didn't even know it was coming. Right. Uh, right. So what, what is a pyroplastic? Is it like just super hot rock or is it gas? It's or gas, is... I think. Hot gases. And, oh, it's hot gases. So you basically just get fried. You just get fried. Yeah. Instantly. Or poisoned or what have you. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. Oh. And then covered by the lava and that comes behind And then the lava comes it. by and just buries you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Those poor people. Wow. Yeah, that's a oh, bit of a downer. So that's pretty sobering. That was Guatemala. So, okay. <laughs> well, what was the rest of Guatemala like? It's like sort of very foresty, very green. It was very green, very foresty. We did not go to the coast in Guatemala. Okay. Um, because we were, I only had one date for the entire trip. That was November fourth. I had to be on the boat in Panama to go to Colombia, um, and we were okay. starting to push for time. Okay. We weren't panicked yet, but we were. We didn't go to the coast. Okay. Uh, El Salvador, we did go to the coast, and it was magnificent. Yeah, the coast 
the Pacific coast of El Salvador beautiful. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and we stayed at Turtle Sanctuary. We <laughs> went out at night with the kids to let the turtles go, you know, and they were all hatched and set them oh, free. Man. And I slept in a hammock with a pelican sitting next to me. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was pretty cool. That sounds really nice. It was beautiful. It was the probably the first part where I went, wow, this is exotic. You know, this is okay. starting to get really cool. Right. Um, so that and, was El Salvador, which after Guatemala. Yes. And then from there, we went to Honduras, which has a pretty bad reputation. But I went to the capital because my buddy, he was a younger guy from Canada, and he had some nurses flying into the capital. To, <laughs> he wanted to meet up with them. So I followed him into to the capital, and um, it, was, it was a mess. It was pretty crowded, dirty city. Uh, what's nothing what's the capital of Honduras? It's got a very long name, Tegalaga, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I won't do it justice, but it's a, right. okay. a very long name. Okay. And it's, but it's not, a very, it's not a very nice city. Well, it's just crowded. We stayed on the row with all the embassies. So that was kind of nicer restaurants and a little safer little and safer, stuff right. like that. Um, and and then we left the next, I left the next morning. He stayed because the nurses had gotten delayed and he wanted to meet them. So I moved on to right. Nicaragua. Um, and Nicaragua was fantastic. And they had had a big civil unrest back in April, which screwed up a lot of travelers, but things were kind of back to normal by the time I got there in October. Nice. Um, yeah. and. Nicaraguan beaches are amazing. Food's good. The cities are old Spanish places. Right. Um, I've given up cigars, but certainly cigars are a big <laughs> part. And rum. They make very good rum, very good cigars. Right. So. And is there a noticeable difference between the cultures, between all these countries, or are they, is it fairly similar? Nicaragua seems much more squared away as in sort of the kind of ranchers. They were a little more well-off. Honduras was very agricultural, but very poor. Okay. Um, Guatemala was very jungle-like, uh, but Nicaragua, now you're into that Spanish culture. Okay. Very much more Spanish. Right. Cool architecture, cool infrastructure. You know, place the place is well taken care of. Oh, nice. Although they're they're tired of their savior, Daniel Ortega, you know, Sandinistas back in the eighties. Right. He overthrew the dictator and now he's the dictator. <laughs> so <laughs> just replace one with another. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Huh. So okay. from there we kept trucking. We got to Panama, which uh uses US currency. That's their currency. Uh, that was oh, a surprise. Right. Our first stop was a town called Bagetta, Bagete. Uh, right. Nice little volcano there. We get there on a Sunday. We check into our hostel and we go for a walk. I know nothing about this place, Arthur. So we're just <laughs> walking around and we hear music, you know, and there's like a gastro pub playing American rock. Definitely a live band in there playing American rock. And we're like, well, let's go in here. We go in, 
and it's filled with American retirees. <laughs> it was an expat town. It was all women. There were a handful of men, but it was mostly single women in their 70s plus. And uh, yeah, they all settled in Panama. And the band was from LA, cover band from LA. So wow. I had my first good hamburger and- <laughs> I mean, who knew? <laughs> the old women retire on their yes. own to Panama. Yes, they're in Panama. <laughs> a whole town full of them. It was pretty cool. Wow, that is. Yeah. So um, I bet there must have been some interesting people there. Yeah. Some interesting stories. Just, they probably traveled to Panama I would have in loved, their youth and were like, you know what, I'm going to come and retire. It's here. a big retirement town. I, I had no idea. And it's not close to Panama City. You're still a long ways. You're close to Nicaragua, actually, in the northern right. border. Um, and what's all the medical treatment like around there? I mean, for older people? I don't know the answer to that, but there must be something. Um, yeah. There must be a hospital nearby. That's good. Um, because Panama City is probably too far away. Right. Um, but we continue to work our way down, and Panama City was quite a surprise. I did not expect to see, like, mini Dubai there's all these beautiful glass skyscrapers oh wow it's so like a really modern it's a modern city and it's the banking capital of you know South America and the uh, Central America um, wow and you have the Panama Canal there which sure earns a lot of money I it's really costly to take a boat through there so I'm sure so there's a lot of banking there. And yeah, the Panama Canal has all the locks in it, doesn't it? Because it's all the different right. heights. Right. So we it's went, all sort of flowing downhill. So. We went to the locks and watched the ships come through. And these giant ships literally have inches on each side. They've designed it perfectly for ships. And now that they have an even bigger ship out there, they've built a second lock over there for the giant, giant ships. Wow. And with just inches to spare. Wow. Um, it was pretty cool to go and watch yeah. ships come through. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of traffic through that. Continuous, continuous yeah. traffic through. That's the ultimate traffic jam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, crazy. So that was Panama, so you liked it. And, and what was the riding there like? I mean, did you get, I mean, you were doing a lot of off road stuff? Uh, yeah, I or skipped. Were you mainly I skipped. Costa Rica in there somewhere. I think Nick, uh, Costa Rica is between Nicaragua and Panama. Costa Rica I did not like. Um, oh, now really? I really? And I, so many people do. Probably why. Um, I did not get to the coast because there'd been, a, there'd been a big storm, tropical storm that later turned into Hurricane Michael and went up and oh, wow. blasted the Gulf. But uh, wow. the beaches, the beach towns were all wiped out and the roads were out. And oh. we stayed in the mountains, right? And it rained the entire week. Okay. My my helmet now, you know, at this point I've been wearing the helmet every day for two months, <laughs> right. and now it's rainy and it's wet, and <laughs> it was not pleasant. It was stinky, and I got I got pink eye, and oh, uh, yeah. How did you How did you get rid of that? You had to find I, you had to find some doctor. Or... I called my doctor friend in the U.S. said what I do, and he said you need this. So I went to the pharmacy and said I need this, and they went okay. Here you go. 
Yeah, of course, because they don't have prescription they regulations. They don't have prescriptions. Yeah, they just sell you whatever you they want. They sell you whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you wow. just need to know what you need. Okay. And I put it in there and it went away. Oh, thank God. <laughs> pink eye. I haven't had that since I was a little kid. I'm right. Like, I got pink eye. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's so a dirty helmet. <laughs> so what did you do about your helmet? Oh. I mean, what did you do? I mean, if, presume if it was a quality helmet, was it an awry or a show? It was an awry. Um, okay, so you could just pull out the lining and yeah, you wash, just wash the it. you wash the pads, but they don't dry. You know, it's so humid and right. steamy, and you know, you put them back in, they're still wet. Um, oh God. Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't good. <laughs> that was not good, and it was just so wet. on the next. So on the next one, then you got to take several spare helmet liners with you, right? Helmet liners and cheap. I mean, I Arai gave me like ten visors. Right. I did. I used the same visor. I never changed my visor once. Right. You know? But I could have used ten liners and pads. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But this is where the fun started. From Panama, we went south of Panama City to the Darien Gap, which, as you know, you can't get. No, I don't know. I don't know well, anything about the, it. The what Darien, is the Darien Gap, Gap, it's Never a jungle. It. It's a jungle okay. in Panama, so you can't get from Panama to Colombia. It's just jungle. Um, oh, okay. It's a roadblock. So we took a boat. There was a boat called the Stall Rat, a steel catch that had been operating for years for adventure bikes. It's no longer in operation, but big boat. They put your bike on the deck, lash it down, and it's like a three-night, four-day trip through the islands, and they move the boat at night, so during the day you're anchored, you can swim and party, oh, nice. and the natives come out with canoes and sell you fish and lobster, uh, and it's Sweet. just a big party boat to Colombia. <laughs> but you have to go to this Indian reservation, the Kunares, and go in and it's all muddy dirt road and you're really in the jungle now. Right. And this was, I was like, man, this is cool. And you get to this dock and there's this old rusty ship and <laughs> you know, a bunch of guys with ropes hauling my GS across the water. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is gonna be bad, but it worked out. And they didn't, um, drop, it. <laughs> they didn't drop it. And we went out and anchored, and then the chief of the tribe comes out to the boat and stays and parties, and you drink an awful lot. And those Indians can pound some rum, but I was not going to let my homies, you know, I was sticking up for the boys in California. I hung in there for as long as I could. Of course, I was sick for the next three days while everyone else was swimming and snorkeling. Right. But, um, okay. But yeah, that's we took a sailboat and uh, they dropped us off in a little town in Colombia. It okay. used to be Cartagena, but there's problems there, so they took us to another place. Okay. To a military place, a military dock, navy or something, and we got off there and passed through customs and and then headed south. Awesome. So that so now you're into Colombia. Now I'm in South America and I'm on the other side of the gap, so I'm like. Now it's complicated to get home, you know. Right. Up until now, I could always turn around and go back. And just ride back, yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, I am in 
I'm in South America, so right. things yeah, are you're getting... committed now. Yeah, I'm committed. Yeah. And Colombia, you know, you don't know what to think about it. Um, certainly it had the cocaine wars, and then they so. had terrorism and rebels and everything else, but, but now it's a beautiful place. Oh, really? Wonderful people. I made the best friends there. Um, really? that I'm still friends with today. Uh, I went to Cali, Colombia, and I see bikes everywhere. You know, there are Harleys, Ducatis, you know, every brand you can imagine, and it's thick. I'm like, what's going on? So I go to my hostel, which is a motorcycle hostel, and um, there's a guy there from Venezuela who tells me it's, it's Cali Bike Week, and he's the MC, and he invites awesome. he invites me to Bike Week, and I become like the guest of honor. <laughs> right. And now I have five hundred biker friends in Cali, and so we did rides, we had barbecues, picnics. It was like a week long festival. And you, so obviously, you're not in any rush to go anywhere. No, so I was like... waiting on my buddy who was flying in to go riding with me, so I'm in oh, no yeah. rush. The only date I had was that boat, and I'm off the boat now. Right. So now you're just like, I can I, I just out, enjoy myself. Hung out with a bunch of biker dudes right. for a week. Do you have to sort of concern yourself with, you know, the climate? And, well, if we don't get down south by a certain point, then it's going to turn... I had ugly. that baked into my plan. Yes, I had scheduled roughly, I'm going to spend five weeks here, four weeks here, five weeks, three weeks, so that okay. I would get to... Ushuaia at the end of the summer. Okay. Um, so I had not broken down yet, so everything was on schedule. Right. Um, okay. My buddy flew in. We rode for two weeks. We had a beautiful loop through everything from jungle, desert, to mountain, coffee-growing mountains. Um, nice. Some great little towns. Columbia's magic. It's a good spot. Really? Yeah, good riding. Good people. Just nice people. Wow, that's yeah. cool. And do they have a lot of sort of weird laws and speed limits or anything? Or you can you, they pretty much leave you alone and you can just do as you like? Now, you're supposed to have your license plate number on your helmet. Oh, really? Because there was a time when the assassins rode motorcycles. Uh, you know? Right. There would be a guy riding with somebody on the back with a machine gun who'd come and shoot right. you. So all the Colombians have their... Uh, License plates on their helmets. I did not do that. No one, no one, no one messed with me. No one right. bothered with me. Yeah. Even the military checkpoints, they didn't. They, they didn't ask because you're a tourist. Yeah, and they can oh. see from your bike and they can tell all your gear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. really white gear with new climb <laughs> gear on. <laughs> Although I was probably getting ratty by then. <laughs> and a really sweaty arrival. Oh helmet. yeah, they are. <laughs> Yes, the helmet was not good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's cool. So after Colombia. Colombia's fantastic. Yeah, now, sounds, sounds I, really nice. I had met my German friends in Panama, but I hadn't really ridden with them. They weren't yeah. on the boat with us. They had. So they, you just contacted them through the ADV website and said, hey, I'm going to be there. Or did you just bump into them in a bar? They, I, had, I started riding with a a uh, Canadian guy in El Salvador. Right. Up until El Salvador, I'd been by myself, but the Canadian guy and I hooked up there. Right. He had been riding with the, the Germans in Mexico. 
Oh, okay. So we all had dinner there, and we're like, yeah, we'll see you. And then three or four weeks later, I met them in the town and started riding with them. Okay. Um, and I rode with them a lot. I rode with both groups a lot. Um, That's cool. So we crossed into El Salvador. First, we did the Devil's Trampoline, which is one of the dangerous roads in the world. So we're like, got to do that. <laughs> and that took us away from the Pan American Highway, took us east into the Amazon jungle. And then we crossed into Ecuador in the sort of in the jungle region. Nice. And then we rode back, we being the, the Canadian guy and I rode back west to Quito and the Germans continued I got stuck in like quicksand. I got the bike buried, you know, axle deep in mud. Um, oh, shit. Meanwhile, they got stuck. The Germans got stuck on the route they went. So we were both, they riding two up or on separate bikes? They were on separate bikes. They okay. were on uh, old original Africa Twin and Transalps, two Hondas, but from the 90s, you know. Wow. European bikes from the 90s. Um, wow. So I got my bike stuck in quicksand. It took an hour to get it free with uh, with a young 30-year-old dude helping me. <laughs> um, and there's a lesson in this, Arthur. <laughs> We're going along on a dirt road, and it's just a big mud hole with tracks going through it. Right. And then on the side, it was dry. And I'm like, I'm not going through the mud hole. I'm going to go around on the dry land. Right. Well, it was dry on the surface. Right. And I just went whoop. Oh. Yeah. So as soon as you crack the surface, suddenly oh, you're in. I was, uh, you know, and it was pulling your boots off when you try to walk, you know. That's quicksand. Yeah, we were stuck in the stuff. And like. How do you get out of it? The worst part is we're pulling this bike for like an hour and, you know, you you pull it a foot and then it sucks back six <laughs> inches, you know, and then. Oh. And we're doing this all day, and a couple come by on a little scooter, and it's a guy, a girl, and they're holding a baby between them, and there's a dog sitting <laughs> on the floorboard, and they just look at us and drive right through the mud, you know, the mud tracks. And we're like, ah, we should have gone. We should have stayed in the tracks. But we got out. That was our adventure for that day. Um, How did the, you get out? I mean, just, just kept tugging, just tugging, kept tugging, tugging, and wow. uh, and oh we God. we rendezvoused with the Germans in Quito. Everybody had their bike service there because everything was starting to fall apart at that point. Um, <laughs> right. you know, How many miles had you done by then, approximately? I don't know, but we got to be close to halfway. You got to be ten thousand miles, fifteen thousand miles in. Um, it's 30,000 miles down to the whole length of it? Uh, I think it's 28 or something. We did 28 down. Holy moly. I, it took me 40. I did 40,000 miles from L.A. down to Ushuaia and up to Buenos Aires. Wow. Yeah. Now, we, we now were, yeah, you weren't taking a, necessarily the direct route. No. But. No. Oh, so this is serious mileage then. Serious. I went, yeah, yeah. 